Hey, Tim, uh, can you come in here for a second? Uh, sure, I guess. All right, welcome to From the Hallway, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. I'm Chris Yee, here with my esteemed guest, Dr. Timothy Bartell, and we are going to be talking about the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, and its relationship to the current racial climate in the United States. Wait, for, for, first, this is, a, this is a podcast. Okay, I'm getting on the right page. You said Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, pre-Civil War, and his relationship to today? I mean, what... Chris, I don't know if you've studied history, but we're a much more enfranchised society. Uh, uh, there is no more slavery. Everyone has voting rights. Yay! We don't have to look back before the Civil War, do we? Why, why would we look back to him to understand the new problems that we have today? Yeah, I think I think that's an important question, and I think it has has to do with a few different things. One, I think we do ourselves a disservice to ignore the racial history of the country when considering the racial issues today. We can't just assume that the current generation popped in out of a vacuum and, you know, slavery, abolition, civil rights, all of that stuff is what happened in the bygone days and now we are in a different place. I think that if history is sort of linear and moving towards something away from something, then where we've been as a culture matters just as much as where we're going. But also, in this current read through Frederick Douglass, I've found a lot of very eerie similarities between rhetoric that was reportedly espoused by the sort of anti-abolitionist slavers to the rhetoric that I hear now just sort of randomly on my Facebook page. William Lloyd Garrison writes the preface for the book, and he says something to the effect of the anti-abolitionists grow angry with the narrative as Frederick Douglass presents it because they think it puts the poor southern planters in a bad light. Yes, of course, slavery is wrong and it's bad, but I mean, how dare we besmirch their characters that much by calling out slavery as an evil? Which, I mean, is might be an unpopular opinion and might get me in trouble amongst my Facebook friends who are saying things that I would deem similar. But that seems to be the same sort of rhetoric that you get with the defense of police systems as unjust now, right? Like, so I think that commonly the, the reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement is, oh, well, blue lives matter, as if saying that you know, something wrong is happening racially in the country is akin to saying all police officers are evil and corrupt. It was just weird to me to notice that that rhetoric was so similar, or at least it struck me as similar, I'm not sure. Yeah, it seems like it's that problem of whenever you say there's a problem in culture, pretty soon you have to say, who's responsible for it? And then maybe we we all of a sudden get squeamish with actually naming someone who is doing something wrong or unjust. And then we feel like we have to create a cause maybe to to make them feel better. Maybe we're caught in a weird cycle, I'd be interested in your thoughts, of we condemn someone for doing something unjust, and then we feel like we've done an injustice in condemning them, and so we, we are sort of in a, a vicious circle. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think that often as humans, we naturally will sort of ally ourselves to, quote, one side or another, end quote of an issue, when in reality, those issues might not actually be sort of cited issues at all. I I think of the irony of the person who would be angry with someone saying Black Lives Matter and saying, responding with, no, all lives matter. Are you saying that, so, so, you know, suddenly, as a a white man or as an Asian man, I'm both of those things, sort of through coincidence, so I can say both of those. I am now offended that you've said Black Lives Matter, when in reality, I want my white life or my Asian life to be the one that matters. 
So that's ironic when then coupled with the other response, like uh, the era of using a hashtag as your argument, by the way, oh, so gosh. bizarre, <laughs> so terrible. But the other side of the response would be blue lives matter, right? Where you're talking about, okay, so now it's not black lives versus all other nationalities, all other races. It's black lives versus the police. But the irony there is you're not saying, you know, all public service sector jobs matter. Right, like you're not pointing out that firemen put themselves at risk and are in danger. You're not pointing out that caseworkers for CPS are doing good work and helping. You're only talking about police officers. And so on the one hand, how dare the Black Lives Matter people say, oh, uh, it's, it's just Black Lives that matter, which they're not saying, newsflash, but that's besides the point. Um, where on the other hand, they're saying blue lives matter. I, I, I want to know where the contingency of like sort of angry Facebook firemen is saying like, how dare you not affirm that firemen lives matter. Red lives matter. <laughs> right. Well, maybe, maybe this is where logic is our friend. It seems like in the hashtag era, if we make a particular claim about a particular thing mattering, everything we learned in logic 101 goes out the window and we feel like a particular claim must imply a negation of all other particular claims in the same category. But if I say black lives matter, I don't mean white lives don't matter. I'm just happening to point out that these particular lives matter because perhaps we have a hard time recognizing that. I know I'm not the first person to explain it that way, <laughs> uh, but that's what it seems to me. If I say blue lives matter, hopefully I should mean, hey, perhaps some people aren't taking seriously that police matter, and so I want to call attention to that. Just like if I say, hey, you should read Frederick Douglass, it would be silly for someone to say, but all authors should be read. I, I could say, well, sure. Well, maybe not all authors should be read, but there are many, many authors who deserve your attention. It's just right now we're focusing on Douglass. Well, let, let's, let's keep going with Douglass. One of the things I, I love about Douglass and I often focus on in teaching is what he says about education, how he learned from his abusive master that if he learned to read, that was a path toward, toward freedom. What, what would you say to someone who says, look, I, I want to know more about how to talk thoughtfully, logically, sympathetically about race today? What, what resources should I turn to, either in Frederick Douglass or, or elsewhere? Hmm. Well, I think there's a few different directions to go. I was just rereading this section of Douglas, actually. It's when his master um, that is letting him sell his own hours and work for his own wage and then just give that to his master. Basically, there's a situation that comes up where Douglas is working at a shipyard and somehow, and this is again where it's funnily echoing, not funnily, eerily echoing uh, the modern context with previous context. The shipbuilders are all saying things like, well, if we keep letting these, these black shipbuilders come and do this work, eventually they're gonna take all of the work from the poor white men and we'll be out of jobs. So we have to get rid of them so that we can keep having our jobs. Also sounds oddly familiar to other things that I hear often, but we won't get into that right now. But all that to say, so Frederick Douglass, beaten within an inch of his life, goes back to his master who is offended and upset because at this point, this is a very profitable slave that he has who's making him lots of money, sure. goes to the court and the court basically says that because there is no white man who will step up and testify on Douglas's behalf, there's nothing that can be done. There's no prosecution that can be done. And the master in that moment has to admit that it's a shame that the system's set up that way. So wow. somehow being individually, like on a personal level connected to a person that you know, mm -hmm. I think does a lot to help think about these issues as a whole. Hmm. So often I think, and, and, I'm, and I'm sort of 
in this camp as well. We, we develop these sort of homogenous groups of people that we're friends with because that's comfortable, right? Like the people sure. that look like us, think like us, act like us, those are the easiest sorts of people to be friends with. Sure. But what happens with that is that then sort of huge racial tensions blow up in the world and we don't know what to do about them. And we don't have anyone to go to where we can talk to them personally who, who know what's going on from the other side of the issue, right? So I think sure. it's weird to talk about a person as a resource, so, so maybe I won't, but something in the way of a resource is honestly just having friendships with people who are different than you, being willing to, and not, not just willing to, but intentionally stepping into communities of, of diverse people who, who come from different backgrounds, who have different views on the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's very important because those relationships, I think, more than any idea that you would find in a book are going to be the things that will formationally help change the way that you that you see race issues. This reminds me of when the Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter was, was all a buzz on Facebook a few weeks ago. It was helpful to have friends who were both black and also who had been involved in law enforcement and talking to them personally and then seeing them talk to each other, right? If, if you can find a friend who is both part of the black community and a policeman, probably they would have very interesting views. And not just interesting, but informed views. I think that's one of the problems that I often face, probably because you said we often surround ourselves with people who we seem comfortable with, who seem to look like us and think like us. I want to be informed. I want to know actually what is the experience of the policeman out pulling people over what, what is the experience of my black friends and my Hispanic friends and my Asian friends who sometimes have felt harassed by police? I'm Hispanic. I, I've been gently but firmly pushed on the, on the hood of a police car and patted down and I wasn't doing anything wrong. And, and that, that, that shaped my view uh, of how the police sometimes treat people. But I have great friends in law enforcement who have helped uh, nuance my views as well. Well, I want to go back to Douglas for a moment because it it seems like Douglas had the ability not just to write about his experience as a slave, but then his experience as someone who, once he escaped to freedom, became an advocate, became that voice informing people, this actually is the slave experience. What do you think we can learn from how Douglas went about talking about these issues and trying to get his his acquaintances and friends who didn't have experience of slavery, who weren't black, who maybe had never even been to the South and seen a plantation. What, what's, his, what's his method and what can we learn from his method in how he approaches talking to people who might not be informed on these issues? I think one of the most powerful things that he does is that he crafts a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than having it be sort of the, the abolitionist papers or the abolitionist argument, Um, or something like that, what he does is just very simply and plainly tells the facts of what it was to live as a slave in the South and then tells the facts of how that, how his journey took him from there to being a free man, uh, abolitionist in the North. And so he inter, he interposes a bit of sort of reflection and, and, and philosophy on, on the issues at hand, but mostly he just tells us the stories as they are. In one sense, I think that, that is very helpful to thinking about it now. Um, but in another sense, I think it's harder. I think we tend to believe people less. Um, I know that I've seen recently people that have posted and talked about sort of their own experiences with police brutality or something like that. And then it's gone viral. And then by the time it goes viral, there are going to be people that are questioning the validity of the original story. 
So it's it's hard, actually. I, I often wonder, like, to, to what degree do we as a culture still believe people's personal stories? Or how far removed from those stories do we have to be before we just start ignoring them altogether? I think it's a hard question. Yeah, and especially it, it seems like we have, well, two things. The internet and social media make it very easy to tell any story we want to anybody we want. And two... It seems like we are we are a culture that thrives on making up stories and telling them to one another. Not making up necessarily in a bad sense, but everyone who has a blog uh, can be an aspiring fiction writer. And I've definitely been online and been reading something that purported to be true, but very quickly I realized, oh, this is a fantasy story that wanted to draw me in by saying it was a true story. <laughs> when we think about politicized issues, that does seem to get even more ominous perhaps why is this person telling the story what are they making up who are they who are they trying to stick it to as it were in telling this story yeah i think i think we're we're very skeptical of people's motives one of the things i like about though uh, frederick Douglass is he seems very open about his motives he's not going to he's not trying to tell you that maybe slavery is okay he's not trying to tell you that you know, slave owners aren't that bad. He's very upfront about the things that he that he's saying that he's against and that he wants done. The other work of Douglas's that I've taught before, which I found I find very convicting, is "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July," mm. where he even goes goes as far as to say we we need not just earnest stories about the evils of slavery. We need outright mockery, scathing satire. This, this is a little later than, um, than Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. But it, it seems like he advocates for perhaps even uh, creative satire in order, to, in order to be an effective abolitionist. I feel like I've thought about these issues less than you have. What, what, else, what else do you think would be helpful for someone like me who, who is new to thinking about these things? I think that I am also new to thinking about these things. It's been a it's been a thing that's been coming up in the news more and more as time's gone on, and I think I've gotten to the point where I can't ignore it. But I know that's that's where a lot of us are too. But I, I don't know. I've been reading a lot of um, random stuff that I can find. I, I find that uh, as well as my friendships tend to be homogenous, my reading lists also tend to be homogenous. Sure. Uh, very often, I, I I have to catch myself and realize that the last like six books I've written have all been written by sort of wealthy white men. And I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> something weird is happening in my literature sort of reading life just as much as it's happening in my personal life. So W. E. B. Du Bois has The Souls of Black Folk, which I think is it's a, it's a pretty quick read, also very important. I know that you recommended to me recently the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley. Yeah, I've I've loved Wheatley. Uh, she she has the distinction of being the first African American to publish a book in America, and she's certainly first African American woman to publish a book in America. But she she has a fascinating story. She was stolen from Gambia as a child, put aboard a slave ship. She was bought by a family in Boston who just needed a slave to help around the house, but they quickly realized that she was very bright. And so instead of having her do much work, they taught her Latin and had her read the English <laughs> classics. And by 14, she was writing the best poetry that was being written in America at the time. She became famous by the time she was 19 or 20. She was meeting celebrities in London and all around the East Coast. She met and talked to Ben Franklin, George Washington. Voltaire liked her work. 
So she, she's a fascinating, fascinating writer. One of the things I like about her is her ability to move from talking about things that her wealthy white aristocratic audience would have been immediately interested in. She has lots of classical references, lots of references to European and American history, but then she will quickly turn on a dime and say, remember who's writing to you. Hmm. Remember that this is an African woman who is a slave who's writing to you. You're listening to a slave. And it's, it's these turns of, these turns in her poetry that sometimes are jarring and surprising and illuminating. We remember that poetry is from a particular perspective. And a lot of people have seen her as one of the first very public, very widespread abolitionist voices in American history. So yeah, she, she's very, very fascinating. Some have even said that without her writings on the imagination, people like Coleridge and Wordsworth wouldn't have said the things they said a few decades later about imagination in their writings on romanticism. So yeah, she's hugely important both both in uh, abolitionist and African-American literature, but also just in romantic literature in general. Hmm. Yeah, and, and one, one last thing I would add is Martin Luther King. Yes. And especially, especially the uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend that as a good place to start. And I think it's, it's very convicting to me, sort of thoughtful, you know, cultural leader in as much as a teacher at a very small classical school is a cultural leader. So the, the, the letter is addressed to the, you know, quote unquote, white moderate. So the, the Christian during civil, the civil rights time that would say, yes, we agree, we need to get civil rights, but slow down, do it more appropriately. Don't cause such a stir. Don't cause such a fuss. Cause I think, I think that's where, I tend to be if I don't check myself. I tend to I tend to sort of be like, yeah, this is a thing that's a problem. I hope it gets fixed, and then I don't do anything about it. And so it's very convicting to me. And I think we often wonder what we would do at certain big moments in history, right? Like, what would you do if you were a German uh, in 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 World War II with the rise of the Nazi Party? What sure. would you do if you were a sort of a Southern Christian in in the slaveholding South? I think that we always ask those questions and then ignore the big moments of history that are happening right in front of us. I think that sort of the current police brutality crisis um, and, and sort of the, the, the racialized institutions that are in place to keep people down, I, I think as time goes on, those will be seen to be a great issue of our time. Not supposed to pol- talk about politics, but you know, there, there are certain people who are running for president who, if elected, could theoretically answer the question of what would I do if a sort of neo-fascist demagogue was rising to power in our country. And I, and I think that it's, it's very important that we, as Christians, be thoughtful and careful um, in considering these, these moments of history and, I don't know, what our place in them is. I hope that I am not to be a white moderate who just stands by while civil rights happens. Um, I hope I'm not to be the average German who just figures that, you know, Hitler makes the trains run on time. Like I, I hope that I have the the courage and backbone to uh, to stand up to those moments of history when they come. That, that's really challenging for me. I agree with you that I think we often overestimate uh, how bold we would be. I was I was in a I was devastatingly taken down in a conversation on on race and protest months ago now, and someone basically called me out and said, "So if injustice is being done, what what are what are you willing to do?" Because we see what some people are willing to do. And in thinking about King, I think one of the things he says is use your creative faculties to the height of their ability 
to find a way to stand and speak for justice. And I think that that's, that's beautiful. We were given creative faculties not just to sit in parlors and dream fantastic dreams, but actually put them into use. How can elegant, bold, public demonstrations and actions be performed in the name of justice that can promote change? Yeah, I, that, that's a question that I've been thinking about and would love to not just continue thinking about, but, but act on. Hmm. Well, I'm afraid we are out of time. Tim, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> You're welcome. This has been From the Hallway, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. I am Chris Yee. Feel free to go check out other awesome content at stconstantine.org.